Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 130. If you're visiting with us and don't have a Bible, we would love to send you one free of charge. You can message me on Facebook or click on our website. Our contact info is there. Just send me an email. I'd love to send you one. We, uh, we're going to take a week out um, and focus here on Psalm 130. Next week, when we're back together, we're going to start a new series on First Peter. Um, and I chose Psalm 130 because we're in waiting days. Um, and this is a psalm, a song of waiting. Psalm 130, starting with verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would bless your word by your spirit. What? An amazing thing it is that we are before the God who is all-present and all-powerful, who is not bounded by space or time or limited by capacities or buildings. And so we pray that where we are, you would meet us, not just in our homes, but where we are in our lives, in our brokenness. For you've searched our hearts and you know how to apply your gospel to those bits of us that are most dark and most vulnerable. Come and meet us there and change us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in waiting days. I think the thing that I have felt the most is the indefinite end to this Waiting days, there's no clear and certain end. There's no clear and certain path forward. I've called this stage two. We kind of got through the first stage when we were all adjusting to new things and the adrenaline was high and we were making plans and now we've realized this is an indefinite waiting period for us. And waiting days are, are always disorienting. You don't know where you're going. You don't know What's next? You don't know. We don't know when we will return back to normal. That's the number one question I get. When do you think we'll be back to normal? And the answer I always give is who knows? And you can't solve this problem on our own. And that's where waiting typically hits us the hardest because it is so humbling. Whatever it is that we're waiting through, you realize during waiting times that you have reached the end of yourself. Your effort can't solve this. Your wisdom has reached a limit. You can't solve this problem. You can't bring about your desired conclusion. And it breaks, waiting does, it breaks the illusion of self-control, self-reliance. And that's why I wanted to take us to Psalm 130 today. Psalm 130 is a psalm 
of ascent. Israel would sing it as they made their pilgrimage many times a year to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in the hill country of Israel, and the temple was on the mount. And so they would literally ascend to Jerusalem during their many pilgrimage, and they would sing this song. That makes this song a traveling song, a song for the journey of waiting. In fact, this was the favorite psalm of many of the greats of the faith. Augustine in the 5th century said this is his favorite song. John Calvin during the Reformation said this was his favorite psalm. These were men who were used to waiting, waiting on the Lord to deliver and provide. John Owen, the great Puritan writer, wrote over 400 pages on this psalm alone. It has been the psalm for many who have waited in the journey. And a psalm like this is for days like this, a waiting psalm for the journey of waiting. And it gives us three things, I think, in these waiting days. It gives us first a voice. Secondly, it gives us a posture. And then third, it gives us a grounded hope for waiting days. So a voice for waiting days, a posture for waiting days, and a grounded hope for waiting days. So a voice. Waiting doesn't mean a stoic refusal to express your pain. And I'm afraid that most versions of Christianity that we are familiar with leave no room for the type of emotions that the psalmist express here in Psalm 130 because these are dark emotions. Listen to this language. Out of the depths, I cry to you. Let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. This is, these are not sort of um, happy, you know, raise your hands in the sky. We're all triumphant and going to make this through. This is a man who is crying because when you are in the depths, you are drowning. Those who recover from drowning often say that the most terrifying part is that you can't breathe. And the psalmist is in such a dark place that it feels as if it's, he's at the bottom of the ocean. When he's reaching for metaphors, he's referencing the bottom of the sea. I am in the depths. I am there where no light is breaking in. I am as far from God as I could imagine possible. The pressure is unbearable and I cannot even grasp her for breath. He is drowning in his despair. We've all felt it, but few have expressed it. The Bible doesn't just give us permission to feel these things. It actually gives us the words to express these things. Because when you're in the despair that often comes with waiting, you're not even sure what you are feeling. And this is when the Psalms actually act as a guidebook for our emotions. Again, John Calvin called the book of Psalms in anatomy for the soul. In the ancient world, an anatomy book gave you a map of what was usually hidden in the body. Things you couldn't see but were affecting everything. And he, and he calls the Psalms an anatomy of the soul because it lays out for us all the 
emotions that we feel. I often read the Psalms and think to myself, yeah, that, that's what I'm feeling right now. And I just couldn't put words to it. Again, Calvin says this. There's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here in the Psalms represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit was here drawn to the life of all griefs and sorrows, fears and doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be so agitated are, are here in the Psalms. They give us a voice for waiting days. Commenting on this psalm in particular, one of the southern writers, a commentator from a couple hundred years ago, notes this. He says, religious experiences has both its depths and its heights. All sun would cause a plant to wither and all rain would cause it to drown. But the Psalms don't just give us words to say for our emotion. It doesn't just give us permission to feel the dark things. It doesn't just give us words to express the dark things in these days of waiting. They help us to say this, Lord, this is what I'm feeling. Right? It's not just that I'm feeling these things, but to cry out to God with those things, to move Godward. That's what the psalmist is saying. I have these emotions, and they are a little disordered. All my emotions are always disordered. My heart does not always feel things that it should feel. It feels things it shouldn't. It doesn't feel things that it should. And so let me, the psalmist is saying, let me give you words to express what you're saying, feeling with a Godward direction before the Lord. And that subtle move of bringing our cries of darkness to the Lord is what creates the posture of hope. Because when we come before the Lord, it begins to change our perspective just a bit. Because if we start with, I deserve better than I'm experiencing, you are always setting yourself up for disappointment. This often happens when I'm in waiting days. And what comes out of my heart and sometimes on my lips is, is Lord, don't you know all that I've done for you? I have, I'm a minister of the gospel. I've given up riches in my own comfort for you. And this is how you repay me? Don't I deserve better than this? And yet, that is the posture that sets me up for most disappointment because I am treating God not like he's generous and good. I'm effectively just trying to sue out an employer. I have put in my effort, now give me my wage. I deserve a raise and better working conditions rather than pleading with a father who loves me and has proven that love and his goodness in Jesus Christ. Verse 3. The psalmist's posture is this. His voice is, I'm drowning in despair. But his posture is, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand before the judge of all the earth whose standard is perfection? Whose bar is set 
in place to measure all of us against his standard of perfection. Bring your best works to the God who dwells in holiness and perfection. And he will reject our best efforts because they are still tainted with sin and are nothing but dirty rags before him. And one of the things that waiting reveals isn't just my weakness, but the ever-present darkness of my own heart. How many of us have snapped at our spouses or kids during this time, just been generally irritable? How many of us have been bored and found ourselves slipping through social media only to quickly find ourselves coveting what others have or who others are? And so the psalmist asks, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But then he quickly transitions in verse 4. But whenever you see that word after the hard news of our sins, you know that good news is coming. But God, it's the great hinge of the gospel. You're more broken than you could ever imagine, but in Christ You are more loved than you could ever dare dream. That's always the hinge of the gospel. And he, he pivots on that hinge. If you would mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And that forgiveness is costly, right? It requires an accounting. It's the answer to verse 3. Oh Lord, if you would mark iniquities, who could stand? And the answer, fast forward millennium is no one because at the cross he marked our sins by counting them to Jesus's account and poured out his wrath with such fury that the son of God could not even bear the question of verse three but because he did bear that and was raised from the dead The answer of verse 4 is abundant. With you, there is forgiveness of sin. And the darkness revealed in our days of waiting only reveals the goodness of God towards those who are in Christ, that he may be feared. Notice that this is the posture that sets the stage for the hope that follows. There is nothing in me that I can bring to you to cause you to be good to me, but with you there is forgiveness so that you might be feared. While the psalmist is confessing his own unworthiness, it is pushing him into the goodness of God. He despairs of himself, but he sees in light of his own wickedness The goodness of the Lord. And this is how it ends. I wait for the Lord. I'm willing to wait for this God. If he's that good, I'm wait for him. Because I know that whatever comes will be good. I'll wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord. More than a watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. And he will implant his redemption. You see, waiting requires faith. And again, when we think of faith, we don't mean blind trust. 
faith is not belief in the absence of evidence. Faith is trust that is based on the overwhelming evidence of God's goodness. And so the writer of Hebrews gives this definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. That's what makes waiting so difficult. I can't see where this is going. I can't see how this is going to end. And that trust piece that makes faith so difficult. How can I know? How can I know that I can trust you? If I'm going to wait for the Lord, how can I know that I can trust you to bring about good? While I'm waiting, I can't see where this is going. And you see, though the circumstances might not change, those who fear the Lord, verse 3, have learned that there is a pattern to the Lord's work. Verse 6, I'm waiting, knowing that morning's coming. I'm waiting, verse 7, knowing that there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. I'm waiting in the depths and crying because the Lord is as he does. And that immediately then takes us to the cross of Jesus, doesn't it? It's the pattern of death and resurrection, that resurrection always follows after death. And as sin doesn't get the last say, brokenness is not the final chapter of the story. Waiting is only for a season. And when he gets the last say, but God raises his son from the dead and new life come. That is the end of the story that we are living in right now. Plenteous redemption in Christ. And Mark read earlier, though you might not have heard all of it, Mark read earlier from Second Peter that we wait for a new heavens and new earth. True hope is not on our circumstances changing but on the unchangeable nature of God. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And you see that word steadfast love, it's it's difficult to translate. In the Hebrew, the word is hesed. Hesed is the special love that God has for his people, the covenantal love that God has for his people. And you see what the psalmist is saying is that faith is not baseless, it's grounded. It's not wishful thinking in the midst of these dark nights when I cry out. It is grounded in this. God is as he does. It has reasons to believe. So when the writer of Hebrews says that faith is the conviction of things not seen, he doesn't mean just trust God. Because then he goes on and he gives reasons for trusting God that are based on the way that God has consistently worked with his people. Though our circumstances may not change, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because God is as he does, you can watch over the theater of his faithful acts and get a sense of what he's up to. And so here's what I want us to do in the, in the pattern of Hebrews 11 and 12. As we run this race while we wait, the writer of Hebrews says, look back 
over this great cloud of witnesses who testify to the unchanging nature of God. So let me take us back to three. Three examples of waiting in the history of redemption. First example, Abraham and Sarah. And here's what they teach us. God makes us wait so that we know that the fulfillment of his promises is by his hand and not by ours. Abraham and Sarah were barren. They couldn't have children. That was a problem in the ancient Near East. They were wealthy, and in the ancient Near East, a male heir guaranteed your name would be preserved. Your legacy would continue on, and your name meant everything. Without your name being preserved, you would just cease to exist. No one would be able to tell your story. No heir meant no legacy, and you just vanished. But God promised that he would make their children as plentiful as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. But Abraham was old, really old. Like, not just having no kids hold, but having no desire to do the thing that leads to kids old. And then God shows up. In his most barren, hopeless time, and he makes him that promise. I will make of you a great nation. Your descendants will outnumber the stars. But then they have to wait. 25 years. 25 years from promise to fulfillment. In, in the meantime... After more than a decade of waiting, Sarah and Abraham tried to take fulfillment into their own hands. Sarah gave Abraham her servant girl, and she conceived and gave Abraham an heir. But God said, no, I will give you an heir. Not Ishmael, I will give you an heir. And Abraham's in his 80s at the time, and it would be another over a decade before Isaac was born. And Isaac means laughter. Because out of a dead womb and decades of waiting, when the darkness was all but dark, God brought new life. By His power and by His grace. Not by their effort. Second example. Israel at the Red Sea. And here's what they will teach us. God will take us into danger to teach us that he fights our battles. So if Abraham and, Abraham and Sarah teach us that waiting is the time when God shows us that the accomplishment of his promises is by his grace, Israel at the Red Sea teach us that in his grace he will take us into fearful places. That Israel even exists at this point is testimony that God does in the waiting times. It's been 400 years since the promise was made to Abraham. 400 years. God seems slow, but he doesn't operate on our timeline. But he is always accomplishing his purposes. 
And during these 400 years of waiting, Israel grew so large that the greatest superpower on the face of the earth was afraid of a nation of slaves. Egypt was threatened by this displaced nation that started from a barren old man and woman in, in the backwoods of an ancient Near East. And so they'd grown in their oppression and waiting and they cried out to the Lord. And the Lord remembered his steadfast love, his covenant love for his people. And he sent a deliverer, a man who would be apprenticed in Pharaoh's own household during those waiting years but a man who had also been absent for 40 years of waiting. And while hidden in Moab, while his people were waiting, God was working in those hidden times to provide a deliverer. And that great day arrived and the nation was freed from its bondage and they were set free with the riches of Egypt. The slaves had plundered the superpower without lifting a finger. But then the superpowers pursued them. Egypt in their chariots making the ground shake and as they're backed up against the Red Sea with each footstep of the thundering army causing ripples across the sea, the Israelites were afraid. Is this what we waited for? Surely it would have been better for us if we had just stayed where we were rather than followed the Lord. At least we had cucumbers back in Egypt. And this is what Moses said to their people. After all of those years of waiting with the sea at their back and the thundering army of Egypt coming after them, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. And without lifting a finger, the waters part and Israel walks through on dry land. And in one flash of the Lord's mighty arm, those waters tumble back over the Egyptians. And they are destroyed. And the result, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. That is the lesson that is learned in the waiting times. The Lord will intensify the threat so that we might see his great power of deliverance and learn to fear him. I've said this before, but when my youngest daughter is afraid of the thunder and lightning, I say to her, don't be afraid of the storms. Be afraid of the Lord of the storms. For when you fear the Lord and know his goodness towards you, every threat begins to diminish in size. Third example, King David. You see, what makes waiting difficult is that we are forced into a position where we can't make it happen. Whatever it is that we want to see accomplished and whatever the waiting period is making us wait for, What waiting causes us to do is to say, I can't make it happen. We are confronted with our weakness and inability. And so here's what David will teach us. David who waits because God is showing that he builds his kingdom. 
David was just a teenage boy when he was anointed as king of Israel. But there was another king on the throne, and God was going to replace Saul with David because Saul had rejected the Lord's ways. And so the Lord anointed David as his new king. David was just a mid-teenager at this point. The smallest of his family, a shepherd boy, anointed as king. And he had to wait most likely another 15 years. And you realize the timing of that is this. He had to wait an entire lifetime for him before he saw the Lord fulfill his promise. And during this time of waiting, Saul is wicked and out of his mind. Saul is out to get David to kill him, and it seemed that while God's kingdom was flailing, Saul was being consumed with killing David, and David would not raise a hand against God's king. He would submit to him and support him. Meanwhile, the Philistines were out to get David. He was God's anointed king. God had done all of these things in the history of his people, and yet... They were out to get him. He had no home because his own king was trying to destroy him. His neighbors were out to get him. He's a nomad waiting for fulfillment in the promise of God, a wanderer in the wilderness. But you see, that's where David learned to sing the psalm that Adam took us to last week. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You see, later in his life, David had success. He was crowned as king, united the nation back together again. His kingdom grew beyond his wildest dreams. God had given him victory. And David, out of his success, gave himself over to sin. First adultery and then murder to cover it up. You see, this is what the Lord knows about us. It is not in our success that we taste and see that the Lord is good. The goodness of the Lord, His particular covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling love for His people is only tasted in the wilderness of life while we wait. Well, we just covered about a thousand years of history. But this is what it looks like to wait on the Lord and hope in His word. It would be another thousand years before the true Redeemer would come and God would fulfill all of His promises in Christ with yes and amen. And it's been 2,000 years since Jesus promised that, behold, I am returning soon. So we wait. But we turn to His word for evidence of who God is. Because God is as he does. And our hope, while we wait, is grounded in the acts of God. And let me tell you how that transforms our waiting experience. Several years ago, three universities did a rather large study on waiting. And here's what they did. They told participants they could have $54 now or $80 in 30 days. But before the participants could decide whether they wanted it now or to wait, they took one group aside and they made them write down one thing. 
describe a time that you are either happy or grateful. And here's what they found. It was only the grateful group that decided to wait for the better reward. In fact, they discovered that the amount of patience exhibited was directly related to the amount of gratitude expressed. One researcher wrote, Displaying gratitude opens up tremendous possibilities for reducing a wide range of societal ills from impulse buying and insufficient savings. And so we look at the great redemptive work of God. In our darkness we cry, who could forgive sins? You alone. And we watch and we wait with gratitude in our hearts for what God has done and what he will do. We wait for a new day, not for the sun to rise, but the Son of God to return and bring the final new day. And so as we'll sing, put your hope in God alone. Take courage in his power to save completely and forever one by Christ emerging from the grave. I will wait for you. Surely wait for you. And on your word I will rely. I will wait for you. I will wait for you until my soul is satisfied. Let me pray. Lord, you are more gracious than we deserve. You've secured all that we need in Christ. Your hand is the hand of a father who loves his people. None of us could stand under your wrath. And so this this is our hope, Lord, as we turn to you. Would you please make gratitude arise out of the gospel? out of your love for us as we wait not just for the end of the coronavirus but as we wait for the end of this age of brokenness and suffering and await the age to come the age of the resurrection that is ours in Christ for in his name we pray amen